0: So today I see a lot of smiling faces. That's good. <laughs> Mission successful. Today we'll talk about what to do, uh, what we would say off of retreat. But in reality, you know, there's no such thing as being on retreat and off retreat because the only thing that changes is the setting right now you will be going out into the world where <clears throat> you'll be meeting with all kinds of situations <coughs> you'll be meeting with all kinds of people and your workplace your family your know, circle of friends and so on. So what is the takeaway from this retreat? The idea here is to understand that you can be loving and kind in any moment. In fact, in every moment. And in every moment you have a choice. You could either decide to be distracted and allow the mind to go here and there and become agitated. Um become filled with hindrances or now that you have the tools of using right effort you can let go of that by recognizing it relaxing it and replacing it with something wholesome so you know what loving kindness is you know what compassion is you know what empathetic joy is you know what equanimity is you have gone through different kinds of meditative experiences, and all that is well and good. But now it's important to understand what to do in your daily life. And that's why I want to talk about the Eightfold Path today. Because that is not really just a suggestion not really just a recommendation, it is a non-negotiable aspect of understanding and realizing for yourself total liberation of the mind. The Eightfold Path is a lifestyle that you choose to apply. It's a lifestyle you choose to live out. Instead of thinking about it in a way that is made up of different kinds of compartments, what you will see is that these are all nested within one another. And they are all interdependent with each other. So let's begin at the, the start, which is right view. Right view or samaditi. Samadhiti means right perspective, the right frame of mind, the right vision, right? The wholesome vision. And they and these this wholesome vision is twofold. There is the mundane and there is the super mundane. The mundane has to do with the understanding that our actions have consequences. We have to understand that. Everything that we think, everything that we feel, everything that we speak, everything that we act out has some kind of consequence when it is, in, it is with intention. So you have to pay attention to your intentions, the choices that you make. Every choice has a consequence, either in the very short term or in the very long term. It ranges, depends upon what causes and conditions are right for the consequences to arise or not to arise. So the understanding of karma, the understanding that this consciousness that we experience is actually made up of Different iotas of consciousnesses that arise and pass away. That there is mother and father, a very big one. That we owe it to our parents who brought us into this existence so that we have the potential to experience Nibbana in this very life. So what does that mean? The Buddha has said that the amount of gratitude that we offer our parents just doesn't cut it. Because understanding the importance and rarity, the preciousness of human existence at a time when the Buddha Dhamma is available at a time when we can actually practice it. And at a time when we can actually experience Nirvana is immense. You know, the rarity is absolutely immense. If you understood just this, Even if our parents have been annoying, even if our parents have been abusive, even if our parents have not really shown us the love that we've expected from them, at the very least, we do not have hatred towards them. At the very least, we just convey in our minds gratitude for them and realize that it's because of them that we are in this existence. That alone is enough. The other aspect of mundane right view is that there is this world and there is the other. That is to say that there is these five physical sense spaces and there is the mind through which we experience jhana. (coughs) And so that is the mundane and the supramundane. Now when we see for ourselves the super mundane, then we start to become less and less attached to sensual pleasures. And that happens gradually. And then finally, that part of right view is that there are ascetics and Brahmins out there who know the path. There are, in essence, teachers who know and have walked the path. And we show our reverence and gratitude to them. That's the mundane right view. The super mundane right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths, coming to the understanding of suffering, knowing how to abandon the causes and conditions for that suffering, experiencing for ourselves in every moment the cessation of that suffering, and continuing to cultivate the Eightfold Path. How is this done? Using right effort. Every time you use right effort, every time you do the four Rs, you are essentially coming to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Every time you relax, you are coming to the understanding of the Third Noble Truth, which is to say you are experiencing the relief from the hindrance, which is suffering itself. And the more you do this, the more ignorance sheds away, and the more wisdom replaces it so whenever you recognize a hindrance you're understanding the first noble truth of suffering whenever you relax that you're experiencing the second and third noble truth because you abandon the craving you abandon the hindrance you abandon the undue attention to that hindrance and then you experience for yourself the cessation of that suffering. And when you come back, you're cultivating the Eightfold Path because the Eightfold Path is encapsulated in right effort. Right effort is at the heart, at the core of the Eightfold Path. It is through right effort that we go from wrong view to right view, wrong intention to right intention, wrong speech to right speech. Wrong action to right action. Wrong livelihood to right livelihood. Wrong mindfulness to right mindfulness. And wrong collectedness to right collectedness. <coughs> Once we've established our right view, then we can have right intention. Right intention is made up of three components. One is renunciation, nekama. What is renunciation? It doesn't mean that we put on robes necessarily. It doesn't mean that we go forth into the homeless life. It can mean that, but that's a very uh, outside perspective of that. We're talking about renouncing the sense of self in relation to things. Seeing things as Not me, not mine, not myself. That is the true renunciation. Taking things not personal. Not seeing things as, this is affecting me in some way. So whenever you read the Dhammapada verses, you see, right? It says, he abused me, he beat me, he dejected me, and so on. If you have those thoughts, then that means you do not have renunciation as an intention. But if you let go of those thoughts then you are applying renunciation. You are letting go of taking things personally. The second aspect of that is non-ill will. The cultivation of non-ill will essentially means the cultivation of loving kindness. And the perfection of loving kindness is that not even an iota of ill will is present in the mind. And then there is the third, which is non-cruelty, non-harming. So that is cultivated through the practice of compassion. Because cruelty is essentially not recognizing the suffering in another being and adding to their suffering. But if you have compassion, then you have empathy, you have understanding, you realize this person is suffering. So if I react in a way that causes them more anger, if I react in a way that causes them more irritation, then I'm only adding to their suffering. But if I have compassion and I see that, then I can de-escalate the situation. So this is non-cruelty. When you have the right intention, then you can have right speech. What is right speech? Abstaining from false speech, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from abusive speech, abstaining from unnecessary speech, abstaining from gossip, right? So what is false speech? Speech that is used to deceive another. Speech that is dishonest, harsh speech, speech that is uh, painful to the ears. Speech that is just harsh in its tonality. Abusive speech. Speech that is meant to cause harm. Speech that is meant to cause pain to another. Speech that is divisive. That you say one thing here and you say another thing there and then you cause division amongst people. Then there is speech that is unnecessary. Talking about politics, talking about this person, talking about that person, talking about sports, talking about the weather, talking about even the Dhamma, unnecessarily. There's a time to talk about the Dhamma and there's a time to practice Dhamma. Right? And then gossip. What is gossip? Gossip is talking about another person, right? That might be true or might not be true, but... How do you know if something is gossip? If you're talking about that person and if they were in the room, would you be talking about them in front of them or not? If you would not, then that is gossip, which means you have an intention to say something untoward about them to others. So the acronym I I use here is called THINK before you speak. T-H-I-N-K. T stands for timeliness is it the right time to say what you want to say is it timely speech or (coughs) untimely speech does it make sense for you to say it right now or can it wait h is for honesty do you know it to be true if you don't know it to be true you can preface it with saying this is what i've heard i don't know if it's true or not but this is what i've heard but be honest all the time be upfront All the time. I is for intention. What is the intention behind what it is that you want to say? Is it a wholesome intention? Or is it an unwholesome intention? Is it an intention to harm? Or is it an intention to bring peace? (coughs) N is for necessity. Is it necessary for you to say what you want to say? In other words, is the speech restless? Are you just trying to fill in the space in between right, two people talking? Are you trying to just talk about the weather? Are you trying to make some chit-chat? Right, some small talk. And K is kindness. Can you say it with kindness? So I've had this question asked before. Well, if you say it, you say it with kindness, what about when we have to work and we have uh, people working underneath us and we need to be a little bit more stern? what do we do then you can be loving and kind and stern right you can express tough love meaning you don't have to use abusive speech you don't need to use harsh speech but you can show cause and consequence if you don't do this this is what's going to happen so get it done you can still be kind about it so think before you speak this is right speech what is right action right action is Abstaining from taking what is not given. Abstaining from sexual misconduct. Abstaining from... Sorry? Yeah, abstaining from killing. So when we say abstaining from killing and harming living beings, it means abstaining from causing any being harm. What does it mean to kill or harm someone? Five things need to be necessary in order for that to happen. Number one, there needs to be somebody who is wanting to harm, there needs to be a weapon of some sort, there needs to be a living being, there needs to be an intention to harm and the action should be made in such a way that the living being is no longer living. This is what it means to be harming or killing a living being. So abstaining from that, abstaining from taking what is not given. Now you're more aware of what that means. Stop trying to seek attention. Stop trying to bring the limelight to you, right? That's one aspect, right? Always ask for things when you can, when you want to borrow them, right? Now, it doesn't mean that when you're in a household amongst people, That you have to always ask them, okay, I'm taking this, I'm taking that. No, because you are within a set of family rules. You're within the household. So if you want to take the car, you're just taking the car. If you want to take something out of the fridge, you're just taking it out of the fridge. Taking what is not given is in terms of possessions, but not amongst family members. It's understood. Everything in this house is ours. Everybody is welcome to it. So when you go outside, for example, that's what it means, right? Being more mindful of that. Abstaining from sexual misconduct. For the monks, that means total celibacy. But wrongful sexual activity for lay people, what does that mean? Not harming yourself, harming another, or harming both when it comes to sexuality, right? Which means no rape, no pedophilia, all of the things we know to be illegal in our societies globally. And not to cheat on your partner, right? That has nothing to do with um, having sex out of marriage. The Buddha never really talked about all of that. And also, it doesn't mean anything against homosexuality. It doesn't mean anything against, you know, having multiple partners. Because you can have um, a polyamorous relationship, for example, and there can be an understanding amongst all partners that we will not cheat amongst one another with one another so it doesn't mean that you have to have so-called conventional ideas about what it means to be in a relationship it's just be honest and be loyal to the partners you have partner or partners you may have whatever their you know um, gender is or whatever it might be it's just do not hurt them that's important and the, other, the way it's understood is, if somebody is betrothed to another, this is how the language is, you know, or under the protection of parents, no sexual activity <laughs> with them either. <coughs> so that's wrongful sexual activity. Now, when we talk about abstaining from, <coughs> so we talk about three things, right? Abstaining from killing, abstaining from taking what is not given and abstaining from wrongful sexual activity. Now, we could talk about abstaining from intoxicants, but traditionally, it's not mentioned in uh, right action. But it's part of having right livelihood, right lifestyle, right behavior. It also helps in terms of having right mindfulness. So, actually, what happened is the fifth precept was added later on. In the beginning, there were only these four precepts. But the story goes is, one time an Arahat got drunk, and it was unseemly to be doing that. So the Buddha said, no, no intoxicants, that's why. So that is right action. What is right livelihood? Right livelihood means to abstain from any kind of trade that causes harm to oneself, or causes harm to another. In the case of monks, right livelihood is abstaining from anything that takes you away from practice. That's why in some suttas, you'll read that wrong livelihood also includes being a doctor. But that's, that's not wrong livelihood. It's wrong livelihood for a monastic. Because their aim is having left the lay life gone into the monastic life for the purpose of what for the purpose of nibbana doctors actually heal they save lives but that's for lay people so in in terms of the lay life what is wrong livelihood any kind of trade or business that deals in harming other individuals so that could include weapons trading arms trading that could include dealing in poisons, that could include um, human trafficking, that could include uh, selling alcohol, right, and that could include in slaughtering animals for meat, because that actually directly kills a living being. So this is part of right livelihood, abstaining from these kinds of activities. So when you have right speech, right action, right livelihood, that makes up sila. That's the first aspect, sila. Then you can have right effort. Now what is right effort? Right effort is what you're doing, the four R's. right? Recognizing when you get distracted, relaxing any tightness and tension, letting go of the distraction. Re-smiling, generating a wholesome state of mind. And... Keeping that wholesome state of mind going. So, right effort is preventing the arising of unwholesome states that are not yet arisen. And the second part of that is abandoning already arisen unwholesome states. The third right effort is generating wholesome states of mind. And the fourth right effort is to keep sustaining that wholesome state that's right effort once you have that then you can come into right mindfulness so i mentioned wrong mindfulness and i mentioned right mindfulness what is wrong mindfulness wrong mindfulness is paying attention to everything that's going on in such a way because you hear about this in today's world mindfully eating mindfully walking mindfully jogging, mindfully driving, mindfully this, mindfully that, right? All of these things. That's only one small component, which is part of some panjanya, (coughs) aware of what's going on in whatever it is that you're doing. But there's another component to it, which is observing where your mind's attention moves from one object to the other while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. So do I have mindfulness in terms of, do I have loving kindness while I'm walking, do I have loving kindness while I'm eating, do I have loving kindness when I'm walking through the door, do I have loving kindness when I'm entering a room and leaving a room, right, am I distracted in what it is that I'm doing, even if I'm aware of what's going on, am I still distracted by some kind of hindrance, so right, mindfulness is about observing how your mind's attention moves from one object to the other, As a result of which, then you can recognize, relax, re-smile, and return. Then that leads to right collectedness. (coughs) Now I mentioned wrong collectedness. What is wrong collectedness? Suppression of hindrances. Becoming one-pointed. Focusing on an object of meditation to the point that you suppress everything else in mind. When you do that, what happens? You come out of the practice and then you might feel blissful for a while. You might feel equanimous for a while. And then when you're met with a difficult situation, all those hindrances pop right back up. You haven't really dealt with them. But right, mind, right collectedness is about being aware, having open awareness to what is going on in your mind while you remain on one object. So having that open awareness allows you to see if hindrances are arising and deal with them in that moment. By dealing with them in that moment, it translates to a better day because the more aware you are in the meditation, the more aware you are in your daily life and vice versa. The more aware you are in daily life and the more you let go in daily life, the deeper you go in your practice. So Right effort, right mindfulness, right collectedness. These are all part of Samadhi. So the aggregate of Sila and the aggregate of Samadhi. These two, one leads to, so Sila leads to Samadhi. Samadhi leads to Panya. What is Panya? Right view and right intention. This is made up of Panya. Because it's only through collectedness, when you go through the jhanas and see for yourself, conjoining serenity and insight, conjoining Samatha and Vipassana, yoked together, that allows you to then experience insight and wisdom. So that's why, in the case of when you are on this path, you're doing the first, the the eightfold path. But when you become fully liberated, it unlocks two more path factors, which is Samanyana and sama vimutti. In other words, right insight, or right knowledge, right? And right liberation. So what is right insight? What is right wisdom? What is right um, well, insight, wisdom, knowledge, whatever you want to call it. What is that? That is the full establishment. Of the, of the Four Noble Truths and it's when your intuition is running. Right insight means your intuition is on 24-7. That is the case for the Arahad. They are being guided by intuition because they understand what's going on in every single moment and are able to always use right, right intention, right speech, right action. In other words, they're very spontaneous. They're very much in the moment. And their intuition guides them into knowing what is needed for this moment. Or what is needed for this group of people. And they will make the decision based on that intuition. <coughs> and what is right liberation? Samavimutti, what does that mean, right liberation? It means getting off of the wheel of samsara. Because there are different understandings of liberation. There's the idea of liberation going into a certain loka, being liberated from this life, but going into a new life where the idea is that you are eternally there for all time. But that is the wrong understanding of liberation. Liberation in this case is getting off of the wheel of samsara altogether. So that is one aspect of right liberation. But in the case of the arahat, they are also able to experience Nibbana in every moment. Indeed, their mind, the mind of the Arahant, is Nibbana. Why? Because Nibbana is the complete destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. That is the case with the mind of the Arahant. And also, they are able to go into the state of Nibbana. So, you might have heard about Nibbana with remainder and Nibbana without remainder. Nibbana with remainder is essentially Nibbana with fuel, the fuel of the five aggregates. Now, it has been understood before that Nibbana without remainder means Parinibbana, the final time the Arahat experiences Nibbana. (coughs) That happens at the dissolution of the five aggregates. That's one way of understanding. But for the Arahat, they go into something known as Samapati. You have niroda Samapati, which is the ability to go into cessation whenever you want. Phala Samapati is actually going into the fruition of Arahatship. In other words, going into the consciousness that touches the dhamma element. And just staying there for as long as you want. Being in the unconditioned all the time. This is a very special state that is available for one who is fully liberated. So that is also constituted in right liberation, sama vimuti. So your goal should you choose to accept it, your mission should you choose to accept it, is to follow this Eightfold Path. It's actually very simple. You've you've done it. You've done it in these last nine days, right? First of all, you've had total noble silence, (coughs) so by default you have right speech, right? You You have kept taking, you kept taking the precepts, and you have committed to keeping those precepts, right? So you're already having right action. You're not doing anything in terms of work, so by default you have right living, right livelihood, right? And your whole point of letting go right intention, cultivating loving kindness, cultivating compassion. By listening to suttas, by listening to dhamma talks, you're cultivating right view. And then by doing the practice of meditation, you're already cultivating right mindfulness and right collectiveness. So you just have to keep doing the same thing you're doing, rinse and repeat, (coughs) when you go back into the world. Will it be difficult? Absolutely it will be difficult. Because you are going to be met with all kinds of challenges. And you should look forward to that. See how well you have trained your mind in those last 10 days. And see what your reactions are like. Do you choose to react? Or do you choose to respond? Do you choose to take a little pause before you say something? Before you act out on something? you choose to... Become reactive and not 4R and notice what's going on? Or do you choose to relax and then from there behave, from there act, from there speak? Do you choose to continue meditating? Right. There are some people who decide, I'm just going to meditate on the retreats. I'm just going to take sila on the retreats. When I get off a retreat, I can go binge drink. I can go smoke a joint. I could do this. I could do that. You know I don't have to meditate I've already done all that you know no when you get off a retreat continue having a routine in the morning for yourself make it a point to take the three refuges make it a point to take the five precepts and then go for meditation 30 minutes a minimum if you can go for an hour even better if you can go for two hours nothing like it right And then maintain times when you can have self-retreat. In other words, maybe once a month or twice a month, you can just go deep into the practice and spend an entire eight hours, maybe listening to Dharma talks, studying, reading, and most importantly, meditating. So keeping sila. Yesterday I told you the benefits of keeping sila. Hopefully that should motivate you to actually keep sila and see for yourself. Bhante Vemeramsi used to say when you take care of the dhamma the dhamma takes care of you. And I have I can testify that to I can testify to that many a times where the dhamma has protected me from all kinds of dangers, all kinds of situations, all kinds of people that could have harmed me. Right. As long as you have this <coughs> bubble of loving kindness, there were so many times I'll tell you. Like last year, I used to go on dope, so many different kinds of road trips, very treacherous road trips, going from one place to the other. And we had these rickety cars, and you know how the roads in India are—you know, all kinds of potholes and things like that—and they could break down at any point. But all throughout the trip, I was radiating metta all the time, and my friend with me as well as best as he could. And so that metta helped us to get along that journey. We had so many different kinds of things that could have happened, but we were okay. That's just a very mundane example. There have been situations where, you know, you could you could have taken a flight or you could have gone somewhere and you get late. Instead of, you know, beating yourself up for it, maybe that flight wasn't supposed to uh, go to the place that it was supposed to. Maybe it would have malfunctioned and taken a detour. Right. So just trust in existence. Trust in your life. Trust in the things that happen around you. Stop trying to control things. Allow things to be as they are and you will see a lot of magic happen. Right? So if you take care of the Dhamma, which means what? Keeping your sila keeping your precepts, meditating, developing insight all the time. For you, the Dhamma will take care of you. Any questions?
1: Thank you for the precious talk, Delson. Two questions. First on the purification. So we have done (coughs) things in our, in this life and past life. I've personally killed insects and mosquitoes and whatnot. Um, And obviously this leads to bad karma. Out of this question, actually, there are two questions. So uh, first is how can we purify these actions? And second is how does the force of karma work uh, if i obviously if i kill a human being that has more negative karma in comparison to killing a mosquito yeah so how does that work
0: so uh, first you have to understand that every time you use the four Rs you are purifying the mind you are purifying karma so that's why the buddha has said that the purification of karma is not through doing ascetic practices but by seeing karma as it arises and letting go of trying to hold on to it. And that is essentially hindrances are the karmic output of times when we've broken precepts one way or the other. So by letting go of the hindrances, we're letting go of that karma to continue. Now, yes, you could say that humans, you know, killing a human would be uh, terrible karma compared to killing a mosquito. But does that justify killing a mosquito? no you wouldn't want to kill a mosquito either actually the Buddha has talked about this like killing humans killing elephants killing more intelligent beings because they have the capacity to experience greater degrees of pain through their nervous system and so on is uh, karmically more terrible let's say than killing a gnat or killing a fly or whatever it is but every time you've done that you know, it might have some kind of snowball effect in the form of a hindrance of ill will towards someone, or ill will towards something, having aversion. And if you can let go of that aversion, you're letting go of that karma. That's the way to understand it.
1: Got it. Um, second question with respect to Aratship. You mentioned <coughs> if you are if uh, if a mind is twenty four seven mindful of activities and of thoughts and views and images and everything right then essentially that mind is a mind of Arath right but then there's another experience where you sort of take a step back and you sort of see the samsara and uh, you know what I mean Uh, but so the question being are these two different kind of Araths, or are these the same arath because it's relatively easier for you to be 24 7 aware than experiencing this because experiencing this is not in your hands most of the times
0: actually for an arahat, it is so in terms of an arahat, they're always mindful right they have complete mindfulness they have complete ability to notice what's going on and secondly because they don't have greed hatred and delusion they don't have any conceit everything that they're experiencing is automatically not even having to let go of. There's no attachment of I to it. That's one aspect. The second thing is this state of disconnecting from samsara is available to only the arahant Because they have let go completely that they can go into any jhana whenever they want. Their mind is like malleable. It's just molten gold. You can Direct it anywhere you want. You want to go to the first jhana, it's the first jhana. From the first jhana, you want to go to the seventh jhana, you can do that. You want to disconnect from the world entirely, you can go into cessation. You want to experience nibbana, that is the nibbana without the five aggregates, and just go into where the mind experiences this fruition consciousness, and you can do that. So that's available to any arahat.
1: So being 24 7 mindful essentially is not being an arat. Because you still don't, you're still not experienced that childlike samsara. Or maybe you have experienced it, but you can't bring it at your will. Or you are still 24 7 available. Yeah, when you're 24 7 uh, mindful.
0: mindful, it also means, it implies, at least the way I would look at it, is it implies that if you're mindful, you're not, you're gatekeeping any kind of craving from arising. Right? If that's the case, then your mind is free of any kind of craving. Your mind is free of any kind of conceit, as long as you're detaching any sense of But
1: there's a gatekeeping that you have to do. There's an effort that you have to apply.
0: That's what I'm saying. But in the case of the Arahant, they're automatically mindful 24-7.
1: So those are two different states of mind, right? Right. In that case, yes. Two uh, practical questions. One is: uh, You've learned how to radiate loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. Any practical tips on how to take the quiet mind to a daily living?
0: Yeah. So, first of all, uh, you want to cultivate the quiet mind in your practice, in your <clears throat> meditation, sitting meditation. And you take quiet mind into daily living is essentially uh, being mindful of the present moment and relaxing into it. Because yes, activity will be there around you. Yes, reflections and thoughts might arise dependent upon those activities. But you think about the quality of quiet mind in meditation. It's essentially pristine mindfulness. It's the sense of being um an observer just watching things go by. So that is essentially a level of mindfulness. So if you can do that by just relaxing into the moment, then you're starting to um, inculcate all of that uh, element of quiet mind into daily life.
2: That's the way to do it.
1: Second question is key. How does one? I mean, you spoke about this the other day? But if you could elaborate on this. How does one uh, develop intuition?
0: Yeah. You have to practice intuition first and foremost. In other words, yeah, like I said, quiet mind is the birthplace of intuition. So first you need to have a relatively silent, quiet, tranquil mind. And let's say you're met with a series of choices that you don't know what to go for. But if you just ask the mind, what choice seems to be the best option? And let go of it. And then, When an answer comes to you out of nowhere, and you trust your intuition to take that choice, then that's how you develop intuition. And it happens with the most mundane choices to more, let's say, life-altering choices that you might have to take. And another way of uh, practicing intuition is, for example, in your meditation, you might be meeting a hindrance from out of nowhere, and it seems like there's something that's underlying that hindrance. And there's no way for you to really pinpoint it so you can ask your mind what is the underlying condition for this particular hindrance how do I let go of the cause of this hindrance so this hindrance goes away completely so in the quiet mind or the tranquil mind you ask this question and you let it go not necessarily in meditation itself and all of a sudden it might come to you that this underlying condition is the cause and then you can use the 4R to let go of that and you start to see a ripple effect uh, everything else after that starts to disappear as well. This is the way to develop it. Oh, the one in front. (laughs) Um,
3: So two questions. First is around right speech. Uh, Say you are talking to a loved one, and uh, they are expressing their grief. And because you are on the other side, you are not agitated. You can see, uh, you know, so sometimes people want to just talk and sometimes they're looking for guidance and in such, or there can be cases where you need to have a sort of tough conversation. Uh, do we need to just focus on using as kind words as we can and not worry about how they will take it because sometimes you can the way you said tough love you can express things with the most kind a compassionate way but they can still take it personally and feel bad about it
0: you can't uh, take responsibility for that but i will say for example like you mentioned grief as an example somebody is filled with grief and let's say you have the wisdom to know everything is impermanent it's not helpful but you tell the grieving person, everything is impermanent. Of course.
3: So in the but head, sorry.
0: but <laughs> if you're compassionate and you're just there and you just are there to say some kind words, absolutely you should do that. So wisdom and compassion, these need to come together. Too much wisdom and you will seem cold-hearted. Too much compassion and you might go out of balance.
4: You need both.
3: Uh, is it a good way in such situations just to ask other person whether they are looking for comfort or for advice because in that case they are somewhat prepared yeah. if you say something. This is
0: a, that's a very good question and uh, <clears throat> at the risk of sounding sexist I'll say that works a lot on women, <laughs> you know for men right. Sometimes women just want to be heard, they don't need advice and I've heard this the hard way like with my mom, my sister if they're going through some kind of emotional turmoil, I'm not there like trying to give them advice. I'm not trying to mansplain what's going on. I just ask, do you want to just be heard or do you want some advice? And they'll tell you. The same way you can apply this in general to anyone.
3: I agree with that as a woman, that sometimes <laughs> we do want to just, you know, just want to express. So yeah. that is true. Um, second question is um, around uh, right collectedness. So, of course, when you are doing daily life mundane tasks like you know cleaning and everything, it is easier to sort of stay with the object. But even in that, there can be two ways. One is you are trying to uh, bring up any kind of brahmaviharas, or second is you just really stay with the task you are doing. You know, just observing right. the smallest or frame <coughs> things. Right. One is not better than the other, right. right? You can do anything. Any, any of those. Any of those as long
0: things. as your mind doesn't go distracted, that's right.
3: all. Right. And if it gets distracted, four hour in, yeah. come back. Okay. Second, in that itself. So when we are working uh, or doing any task where it requires us to stay focused, uh, does the same rule apply? You just stay focused on the task, and as long as you are not getting distracted, it's okay. Like. Whatever it is, writing, coding, any, any right, work task. Right. You don't have to uh, you know, try too hard. Exactly.
0: That's a really important. I'm glad we brought that up. Because you don't want to be one-pointed in whatever it is you're doing. So a lot of people feel like they're in the flow when they're just on, in their work. But after you come out of the flow, how do you feel? You feel exhausted. You feel tired. But if you're mindful and you're saying, okay, this is what I'm doing, and you remain or maintain a certain level of distance, then you notice that you're more efficient.
3: Just uh, not a question, but just a, sharing a small experience because it's last day uh, around the question of killing. One thing that I have realized from my experience of absolutely maintaining the precept of not killing in last some months, I would say. It doesn't it feel a lot if you kill a mosquito or a fly or a spider or anything. But if you actually put effort in not killing, it uplifts the mind. Yeah. So that in some ways helps the practice uh, at a very, very good level.
0: That's a wonderful point. Yeah. Yeah. Good.
2: All right. Related to killing. Mm -hmm. Um, So yesterday we spoke about all the different situations when it comes to humans. I was curious to understand what about animals who are suffering? pets or just, grievous, you know, just grievously injured animals and, and euthanizing them, Yeah. Um, do we have the right to make that decision? Absolutely
0: not. Okay.
2: Yeah. That's it. That okay. was the question. <laughs> uh, my
5: question is related to donation. The dana which we make in terms of money or the dana which we make in terms of food or any item or clothing, which we actually, for example, food, Mm -hmm. we cook and then we give it as a dana. So giving money and giving a gift, are they equivalent? I mean, the fruits of the dana is equivalent or giving something which we prepare like food or clothes or any item is better than giving money as a dana.
0: I think you have to look at it this way. So the highest kind of dana is what? Dhamma. So if somebody is giving you Dhamma, any dana that you give is well appreciated and worth it. Doesn't matter if it's money or food or clothing or whatever it is. But even with money, right, you have sweated and toiled with your efforts to earn that money, well earned money. So that in itself is also showing I am putting my effort in the form of this money which represents my appreciation for you. That's one. Same thing with preparing food. You make the effort of preparing the food. Or you make the effort to maybe stitching clothes or getting the clothes from somewhere. <clears throat> Whatever it might be. So don't have to look at it in terms of the hierarchy of you know what is better and what is less uh, useful. It's more about what is required for that person in that moment. If it makes sense to do that, then do that. But remember, the highest dana is always dhamma. If you can provide dhamma in some way, that is very meritorious.
5: For that, I'm very small, very tiny.
4: Guruji, I am saying this at the risk of repetition, but it centers around the issue of killing Mm -hmm. and also keeping the precept of abstaining from killing or harming any living being. Yesterday, we spoke about the executioner and his (coughs) is terrible, Mm -hmm. even though he is doing that at the behest of somebody else, rather at the orders of somebody else Mm -hmm. as a part of his duty. Now, when somebody gets a contract killer, to get somebody murdered. Now, whose commas are terrible, number one. Number two, uh, we while living in this so-called civilized life, urbanized life, we want our houses to be uh, skipped and clean and pace control is a routine a regime where we employ somebody to get those pace killed and uh, the gentleman <coughs> offered to Mosquitoes, I'm, I'm just telling all those instances, different situations. Mosquitoes, now uh, there are deadly diseases caused by mosquitoes and we also, although uh, uh, the, there is thing, uh, squatting bats are all around now because many times your nets don't help, especially your children are at home and things like that. Now in such situations, what is the best way to keep the precept of abstaining from can All right so let's
0: talk the, let's talk about first your first question about the contract killer
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so of course the contract killer is making <clears throat> terrible merit by killing someone, but the person paying them to do it and making them do it is also having terrible karma anytime you cause somebody else to break a precept, that's also bad now when it comes to uh, pest control. I, I don't know how it is, but you know, in some places there are uh, non violent pest control options available. Different things that you can do. If you can find that, then that's great. In the case of mosquitoes, yes, some mosquitoes carry disease and things like that. But uh, better not to kill anything at all. The chances of you probably contracting a disease from a mosquito might not be as. Uh, you know so possible as you might think right there may be very low chances that that could happen so better to find more humane ways of dealing with pests and using pest control um, <clears throat> whatever you can do to prevent the possibility of someone else trying to do that because even when you hire pest control what you're doing is you're causing the other individual to do it on your behalf, so that's karma on them, and that's karma on you as well.
4: So both both of them share that.
0: Well, the guy who kills probably has more. Uh, okay. Terrible karma. Let's True. Say.
4: So the so the judge ordering. The punishment. Oh yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. A lot of judges are in hell right now.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, we certainly want a society where we stop yeah. this punishment. It's called what is the name? Uh, Capital punishment. Capital punishment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. But still, again, it's still <clears throat> it's still dealing with killing, right? In the ideal world, you you wouldn't need to protect your borders. So even during the time of the Buddha, you had soldiers, you had guards, you had people who had to protect the borders. So even there, by killing. I mean, you, you can try to justify the killing by saying, "I'm protecting the country, and I'm uh, defending, and all of these things." But killing is killing.
4: Yeah, even if a doctor cleans the wound and puts some medicine to kill some germs inside.
0: No, in that case, no. Okay,
4: no. okay, not yeah. that.
0: Because germs, like germs, like bacteria and things like that, within the context of Buddhism, uh, they are living beings, but they're not necessarily beings with intention and the ability to take rebirth.
4: Oh, yes, yes, that was. Yeah, you mentioned that in uh, the case of IVF also. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, Yeah, the sperm is not right. the living being. Thank you. Thank you, Guruji. <coughs> <coughs> um,
2: <coughs> in connection to that uh, question about uh um, <laughs> so What's with you guys, man? No, it's a, <laughs>
4: um,
2: isn't it like a bit of a similar situation with uh, eating meat?
0: I'm glad you brought this up. Everyone brings this up at some point or another. Well, it's your choice.
2: That's all I'll say. Okay, but well it's not technically breaking a precept.
0: According to the, the Buddhist context, no. It's much more complicated than that. Okay. So in the case of uh, uh, monks, like there's the Jiva Kasuta, uh, monks are permitted to eat meat because they have to accept everything that's given to them. Only on certain occasions, they cannot take meat. If they've suspected that the animal was specifically killed for them, if they've heard that the, the animal was killed, if they've seen the animal killed in that case. So they cannot accept that meat.
2: Okay. The second question is something that I've asked myself a few times and that I've experienced a few times as a being a tourist in India. If, for example, a taxi driver wants to charge like double the amount, that seems reasonable. Is there a specific way to, to deal with that situation? You always got to haggle
0: to? in India. <laughs> always.
2: Okay. So no, Sutta, about that.
0: No, no. Um, <laughs> always try to get the best deal you can. Okay. okay. You'll be one of us when you learn to haggle.
5: <laughs>
0: Any other questions?
5: Uh, when you said parents are um, aware 24 by 7, means they don't sleep at all?
0: They sleep, but they don't really sleep. Okay. And I sleep mindfully.
2: Okay. Acharya, uh, in, after these 10 days, uh, in this whole journey, there was no mention of devas, because it was not required, because yeah. everything was done within our mind. And that's what the journey was taking place of, how are devas and the religions? being in place and how are they helping us around maybe you
0: have opened an entire can of worms on this (laughs) Um, what do you mean specifically in terms of your question
2: because uh, in a Hindu mythology we start with worship Mm. so every day we worship to the God asking for his blessings maybe he could help us out Mm. so everything is with asking for help because we are not doing anything out of it only thing we can do is ask him, please help me out. How is it? And how is he helping us out?
0: So, within the Buddhist context, <coughs> if you think about it, devas are their own independent beings. They can choose to help you and they can choose not to help you.
2: <laughs> as easy as that. So, so because uh, in Hindu mythology, there is solution for everything through puja. Right. Or anything. Or yeah. yajna. So.
0: Remember I, what I said about rites and rituals? couple of days ago when we were talking about clinging to rites and rituals. This is what I was referring to. If I only do this kind of puja, I'll get this. If I only do this kind of yagya, this kind of havan, I'll do this. Uh, I'll get this. You might get it or you might not get it. That's dependent upon how the Deva feels on that particular day.
2: (laughs) So uh, one more small last question. Uh, Being in a Buddhist uh, space and looking at the the pictures around, there's a lot of anger, Uh, there's a lot of anger, there's a fire, uh, there's fight, all the elements which represent here, what do they actually try to represent?
0: You should not ask me this because I have no idea.
5: all the way in the back. Recently I visited such uh, museums. Hmm. Uh, So so they said that these are the pictures. They are the protectors, fire protectors, then water protectors, then air protectors. So they depict the protectors. They're all bodhisattvas, bodhisattvas in various forms and various elements. And they are just the protectors. In Mahayana tradition, they depict us because this temple is Mahayana, belongs to Mahayana traditions. Because if we see there is Manjushri Hall,
2: mm-hmm. then
5: Maitreya, then Vimal Kirti, that dining room is Vimal Kirti dining room. Mm-hmm. So these are all Mahayana, belongs to Mahayana Bodhisattva philosophy. All are protectors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay.
5: Just one question, can I? Uh, I wanted to know the real difference between self-respect and conceit. Mm. And uh, the context is as follows, that when we are training our children in school, I believe that they need to have some amount of self-respect in order to perform, and then we inculcate those things. Yeah. So, are we sowing the seeds of I, me, and mine?
0: That's a very good question. Uh, You guys have the sheet, types of conceit? Maybe we'll go over that a little bit and then we can explore that. So here are the types of conceit. One-fold where the mind feels superior. Two-fold where one brags about oneself and belittles others. Three-fold of I am better than so-and-so. I am equal to so-and-so, and I am worse than so-and-so. Fourfold conceit of identification with gains, fame, praise, and pleasure. Fivefold in relation to experiencing as an I am feeling forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and tangibles. Sixfold <coughs> in identifying with the functions of the sixth sense basis. Sevenfold conceit of pride, arrogance, boastfulness, self-loathing, overestimation, the sense of I am, and false sense of equality. Eightfold conceit arising from the eight vicissitudes of existence, pride of gain, fame, praise, and pleasure, and self-hatred due to loss, infamy, blame, and pain. Ninefold conceit of the threefold conceits, each experienced in each three cases. In other words, where one is indeed superior to another and feels superior, inferior or equal to that person is inferior to another and feels superior, inferior or equal to that person is equal to another person and feels superior, inferior or equal to that person. And this can be in reference to morality, practice, or wisdom, or anything else. Tenfold conceit in relation to one's status, family, beauty, wealth, education, occupation, creativity, knowledge, learning ability, or ability to convey information in an eloquent manner. So these are the types of conceit that somebody could experience. When we talk about self respect, what does that mean? It's a healthy sense of self esteem. That really essentially means that you are grounded in knowing what you are capable of and what you're not capable of. And self-respect means that you are having loving kindness for yourself, right? Being kind to yourself is not conceit. Being compassionate with yourself is not conceit. Being generous with yourself is not conceit. But boasting about it is conceit, right? Defending yourself in the case of when somebody does something untoward is not conceit. So self-respect is all about having loving kindness and having the understanding that you are capable of things and not doubting in yourself. Actually, in today's world, that's the thing. We all need more self-respect, more self-esteem, especially in my generation and the generation that follows. There's a lot of self-hatred, a lot of self-loathing. They have this thing called the imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough. Need to let go of all of that and see the qualities that you do possess and have loving kindness towards them. That is not conceived. Okay, two questions. Yeah, one in the back and then one in the front.
5: Uh, Sir, so it's regarding uh, meditation practice. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we are doing meditation, and uh, suppose. There is energy flowing, Uh, there is continuation, and we are sitting, suppose now we are in retreat for 10 days, it is in continuation. So we have time to release it, we have some different, we are going on, but when we will go back, when we will practice, and when such flow of energy is there, then how to balance it, means how to end that sitting session, what we have to do at the end, means we are sitting, we are, we are doing our object of meditation, but still going on. And we know we are sitting for some time, we cannot give that much continuous. So how to balance that energy and how to, what to do before getting up of the sitting?
0: Every time you, before you get up, uh, review what happened in your mind. And if there's anything you missed, let go of it. <laughs> like I said, <coughs> it's going to be more difficult for you when you go out into the real world. Uh-huh. You have to accept that. Mm. but now you have the tools so you can meet with the challenges of the real world using Mm. right effort Mm. using the eightfold path that's where the rubber meets the road that's where the test the true test happens Mm. to notice whether you only are able to feel happiness and joy only Mm. in places like this Mm. or are you able to cultivate more of that happiness and joy even in difficult difficult situations
5: Means is it that that if we are uh, uh, means c- completing our session, sitting session and we are d- with some object, then again we to mild that energy, do we have to again come back to radiating that energy and then lowering down and lowering down? And this?
0: I didn't understand the last part. Say again. Means
5: uh, do we have to, uh, for balancing it, do we have to come back again to radiating loving kindness and radiating upekha and then just settling down?
0: No, no, no need need for that.
5: It can be continuous and just we have to accept whatever is. uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You
0: had a question.
3: Uh, A follow-up question on conceit. Um, So when we are comparing our own past actions and there is... Any kind of aversion, that's self-loathing. That's understood. But if we are comparing, so you know, just just to trying to understand, you know, from point A to B to C how we have moved differently Mm -hmm. and just, you know, sort of taking notes. Like even in meditation, we do okay, this is something that is working, this is something that is not working, and all of that. That is okay. That
0: is absolutely okay. In fact, the Buddha talks about it, and he says, You have to notice how much more do I have left in terms of Craving, uh, Where have I gone towards? You know, what improvements have I made? All of these are welcome to the mind. All of these help you in your practice and progress in the practice.
3: So self-assessment in every uh, Absolutely. sense. Of
0: Absolutely. That's it. Okay. Let's share some merit.
4: So, once again, thank you. Thank you so much. You came to Buddha Pada uh, to do this retreat. Hopefully, uh, you had a uh, wonderful time here. And uh, basically, uh, it's a thank you note. We have a small gift for the teacher on behalf of the Buddha Pada, as well as all the participants here. So yeah,
0: thank you so. Yeah, let me just also say thank you to Buddhapada for facilitating this and uh, you have a wonderful retreat <clears> location over here and uh, I for one personally really enjoyed my time here so thank you for each and every one of you as well for attending and uh, may you all be happy mm-hmm.